0: Listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. This morning, I'd like to invite you in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. We began this series two weeks ago. If you missed either of those weeks, you can find those podcasts on our website. But we have been looking at the last phrase of our vision statement. Bethel Bible is a church that exists uh, to grow communities. We want to be a church that builds leaders, and we want to be a church that lives generously. We want to be known as a group of people that are characterized by that word generosity. We want to be a group of people that are known for giving their lives away, that God is giving us everything we need in our time, our talents, our words, our homes, our cars, all that we have. He's given us that we should live generously And so this past two weeks, we saw in week one a group of people that were living exactly like that. They were living sacrificial lives. This group was a group of churches in Macedonia. But what was so interesting about this group is that they were a church that says they were being attacked from all different angles. It wasn't a church that had things going well for them. It said they were suffering from extreme poverty. the thing that was remarkable about them is they still found a way to give and to live generously. And Paul was using these churches of Macedonia to call Corinth back to that again. They began, but they slacked off, they fell off, and he's using Macedonia. He says, look at these people that are living generous lives. Even though they're being attacked from all different levels, they are severely impoverished. they are living generously. And so, kids, this morning in your uh, kids' bulletins, I've added something uh, at the end of one of the pages that I want to encourage you to take home, maybe on your ride home today or maybe over lunch. And there's uh, some questions that I want you to ask your parents. Don't show them what it is yet. Surprise them. But take those questions and ask your parents, maybe on the ride home or maybe over lunch, and parents, take this opportunity to lead your children through those questions. And then in week two, we saw these Christians in Corinth, often like us, have great intentions. But good intentions that are not acted upon are simply that they're useless. They're just good intentions. And we saw that this living generously is not something that is distinctly Christian. Every world religion has a... And mindset of living for other people, of being generous, of helping other people. But Paul laid it out so beautifully for us when he says, Who better, who better to live generous lives than those that know the grace of our Lord Jesus? We are the ones that know what it's like to be forgiven. We know what it's like to have someone, to have mercy on us. We know what it's like to be given more than we deserve, We know what it is like to be rewarded for more than we have earned. And we know what it is like to be loved unconditionally. And so Paul says, who better? Who better than to live generously in a world than those that know the love of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so today, Paul is going to talk about an issue that was very painful for him. Paul had some things happen to him. Because of his love and his passion for Jesus Christ and the gospel, we know Paul suffered greatly. In fact, you're in 2 Corinthians 8. and 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he lists some things that happened to him. He says, three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. In fact, so bad they thought he was dead. And when he walked back into town, they couldn't believe it. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was drifting in the sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, robbers of his own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers of false brothers. And it says, in toll and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So the Christian life for Paul was anything but easy. It wasn't easy for him. It was very difficult. But he is going to talk about something today that I think in some ways is more painful than any cut, bruise, or even suffering the harsh elements of nature. What Paul is going to do, he is going to open up a wound for us to see today about what it is like to be falsely accused of something. And I think for me, I've watched people, I've had it happen to me, that it, it seems like it is one of the worst things that a person or a couple or a family can walk through is being falsely accused of something that you never did. Now, it happens all the time in your home. If you've got little kids, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. It happens all the time. But as you get older, there are things that happen that we can be falsely accused of because it's what's so difficult about it what is so hurtful and so painful. And sometimes it's, it's extremely difficult to move past it because it can always linger there, even if it is completely false. So this is where we find the Apostle Paul today. He's going to show us how even through generosity, how to respond to false accusations. If you remember back to our timeline Uh, We've been talking about Paul that he helped establish this church in Corinth. And he set them up and he shared the gospel. And people believed and a church was soon birthed. Leaders were put into place. The gospel continued to spread. And they began to live generous lives. What happens is that one area that was obvious was how you have to hold, how these people were holding earthly possessions there were a people of great influence of great wealth and and these possessions meant everything to them and those around them started watching that grip loosen on the things of this world and everyone was talking about how that group in Corinth all of a sudden they were not chasing after the things they once chased after they were not valuing the things that they once sacrificed for because their priorities began to change They began valuing the things of heaven more than the things of this world. And I think we would say it was obvious that salvation had come to those homes and it was seen in their grip loosening on the earthly possessions. These people began using their resources, not just for personal gain, but for others. And people were noticing. And an offering was being taken that was going to be taken back to the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. But then there lies the problem. Well, after Paul left, some false teachers came into this church, and they began teaching some false doctrines. But on top of that, they began painting Paul in a a difficult life. They began taking his reputation, and they began speaking against it. They began attacking Paul's integrity. They began questioning his motives with this money. How do you know it's going to get there? You know, man, you, they don't need your help. You know best what could be used with that money. And they begin buying into the lives. And Paul's integrity was being challenged. And they soon abandoned that offering. Because here's what Satan knows. Satan knows, and what we need to be aware of, is that money, it has a great power And an influence over us. And Satan will use anything and everything he can to bring down God's children. And our integrity, especially with our money, can be used to destroy our reputations and our testimonies for the gospel. But it can happen with anything. It can happen with your words. So let's pick up where Paul begins in verse 16 of chapter 8, and we're going to walk all the way through verse 5 of chapter 9 today. It begins by saying this in verse 16, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you, Corinthians, For he not only accepted our appeal, but by being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. So once again, Paul wants to make sure to assure them that this is not not Paul's way of manipulating people or getting people to do things that he wants. It's not a power play. He says, this brother Titus, he wants to come to you, Corinthians, and it's his choice. He has a desire to come to you. And then verse 18 and 19, he says, With him, I am sending the brother who is famous among the churches. But I love what he is famous for. He is famous for preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So he says, not only is Titus is coming, there's another man, we don't know who his name is, someone that is well known for his passion of the gospel, but it's not just Paul's decision. These are people, men that have been appointed by the church as leaders. And that is the example that we try to follow. But notice their purpose is this. It's to carry out... This act of grace. This act of grace is once again that collection to take this money back to the suffering uh, uh, Christians in Jerusalem. So moving to look at verse 20. We take this course. We're going to do this. This is our plan so that no one should blame us about this generous gift. That is being administered by us. For we are aiming for what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So Paul's integrity, Paul's integrity has previously been tainted by these false teachers. Any leader for Jesus Christ from time to time, you know what? They will come under attack from Satan. Every time we talk to our deacons, we talk to our elders, we talk to our team leaders. If you accept this, just know Satan will come after you. Because he wants to discredit the power of the gospel. And since he cannot discredit Jesus, you know what he does? He goes after his followers. If you want to bring down the leader, go after his followers. Satan does not want this collection to reach the Christians in Jerusalem. So to do so, he is going after those that are in charge of the collection, namely Paul. And here's what Paul does. He rises above this. And he knows, he believes that this collection will be used by God in incredible ways. So he doesn't just give up. He doesn't just move on to something else. Paul fights back. Now this is how he's going to do it. First of all, he puts some accountability in place. He backs off and he says, I'm going to send Titus. I'm going to send another man. They're going to come to you. The churches have appointed them. But look at verse 22. And with them, I'm sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. But who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence So now we have a third person that has a great desire to go with them. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. Meaning he is working on your behalf. And as for our brothers, these messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof, show evidence before the churches of your love. And of our boasting about you to these men. So before we move to chapter 9, I want to stop and just talk for a few moments about this word, integrity. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks as we've been walking through these few chapters. And this idea of, of living with integrity, of we might say living above reproach, is something that we often talk about with our elders and deacons. But it is something that all of us as followers of Christ need to be aware of. Back Philippians 2.14, verse you've probably heard several times, it says this, that do all things without grumbling or disputing. That, here's the reason, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul says our integrity, that it should shine as a light in a dark world. That God has given us every resource we need to be generous. Our time, our talents, our money, even our words. But every single one of those must be handled with integrity. And so students. Hear this today. There is no such thing as a little or a harmless lie. There is never a lie that stands alone. Every lie you tell. You eventually will have to tell another lie. To go with that lie. And it doesn't matter what it is. I know we can lie to save face. Because we don't want to look Uh, In a certain light, we can lie to get out of trouble. We can even lie to protect people. But the truth is, a lie is always an attack on your integrity. And once it is marred, it is so difficult to get it back. Once it's lost, it is difficult to regain your integrity. And no lie will ever stand alone. But even in our money, even in our finances, the way we handle every resource, I'll never forget the time, my real first, as an adult, my my first encounter with someone's lack of integrity. I was living in Henderson, and I joined the local Kiwanis Club. Every month, we paid our dues, we had a monthly meeting, and our big cause was to raise money uh, for countries that had iodine deficiencies, and people would develop uh, deformities because of the lack of iodine and we've discovered that that's why we buy iodine salt is that that little bit can can cure that so that's what we raise money to build these salt plants that would help people later on i remember the time i'd been elected to the board and i was on that time and we had done an audit an audit of our books and a special meeting was called one evening And I remember sitting in the eve that that meeting with uh the auditor and I was an accountant, so I was familiar with some of these terms. I could tell that there was something wrong. This man had to open up that our accountant, who was well-known in our community, worked at a local bank. His family went to a a great church in town. He was well-known. But for the last three, three and a half years, he had stolen over $10,000 from our account. When he was confronted about it, and man, I believed him, he said, man, I just got behind on certain things, and I meant to pay it back, and he said, in fact, the first few times I did, borrowed a little bit, and before long, I paid it back, and no one knew, but before long, it got out of hand to the point that I could not pay it back. I believed him, and felt sorry for him because I watched this man's integrity crumble, Many people have their integrity marred, whether it's with money or it could be with our words or even with our time. Most of us, we do not set out to do harm like this young man did. He never set out to hurt anyone. But in the end, his integrity was destroyed. He he was shamed in this. The sad thing is that we see even in churches and even in church leaders, that no one is immune from destroying their integrity or their reputation. There are so many temptations. Every day there are temptations with our money, with our lying, with our words, with our affairs, everything that can happen, and there's always an opportunity for our integrity to be compromised. But well, we need to be a group of people. We need to be a group of people that are, are constantly fighting for that and living above reproach with every resource God has given us to be generous. But you know, preachers, we're not even immune to the testing of our integrity. I was reading a story this last week of an old man that called in his doctor, a lawyer, and a preacher. You know, those three guys walk in a room, something crazy is about to happen. This dying man, he said this, I said, I want to tell you that they've told me you can't take your money with you. But this man said, I'm going to. He handed each of the men a, an envelope with a $100,000 of cash in it. And he said, when you walk by my casket on that day, I want you to slip that envelope in that casket. Because he says, I'm taking it with me. Those three men walked away. Man, they were shocked. They didn't know what to do. they have never had this happen before. But they all promised they all promised to do exactly as that man said. Time came for the funeral. On the way home, the doctor's conscience just got to him and he couldn't handle it anymore. And he confided in the other man. He said, listen. He said, I took that $100,000 and uh, just started using it. And in fact, he said, I took $50,000 of it. But I, I put it to a clinic. So $50,000 I then put in that envelope and I uh, put it in that casket. Well, that lawyer, he got convicted. And he said, Well, he said, I took $75,000 for some legal fees of defense fund. And he said, But I put $25,000 in that casket. The preacher looked at them and said, Men, I am so ashamed of you. He said, I put a check for the full amount in that casket. And so, but the thing is, all of us. It's just little things like that. See, some of you just now got it. All of us have our integrity at times being challenged, and all of us have it. No, it's no big deal. Nobody will ever know. But Paul knew what it was like. Even in good intentions, even in good things, our integrity can always be attacked. So then what Paul does, he begins and he just kind of changes focus. He wants them to know, these men are coming, and this is the reason why. They've attacked my integrity, but I want you to know, we've put a plan in place. So now he turns his laser focus in chapter 9, verse 1, back on the Corinthians. This is how it begins. Now, it is superfluous for me to write you about the ministry for the saints, For I know your readiness, I know your intentions, I know you're ready for this, which you've been boasting about you. We've been telling people about you, especially the people of Macedonia, saying that Acadia and all those ready since last year of your zeal, it has even stirred up most of them. So Paul is doing something really interesting here. He says that... Now it is superfluous, or it means perosis, which means more than enough, or there is really no need. So Paul says, really, there's no need for me to write to you about this. But what does Paul do? He writes to them about this. But really what he is saying, he's saying that there is no need for me to stir your emotions again. And I know we are driven by emotions and so many times. And Paul says, no, the time for emotions is past. In fact, they heard the stories of children starving to death in Jerusalem. They heard of adults having to make unthinkable decisions to just survive. And their emotions were stirred and that was used. And they agreed to be giving to this. Paul says, no, it's time to move on. You've had your emotions stirred. It will not do any good to stir those again. He says, now it's time to act. When they had their emotions stirred, they began began in generosity. Difficult times come, but Paul says, now it's time to put a plan in place. Because Paul knows there will be times when we don't feel like living generously. And Paul says, that is the moment, that's when you need a plan. Not when you need your emotions stirred. So he used them in the example of the Macedonians. When the Macedonians heard what the Corinthians were doing, they were stirred up about this and they began. But the Christian zeal and excitement, even though it had stirred others up, theirs began to dwindle. So he's saying you don't need your emotions stirred again because emotions can come and go. Their emotions were stirred and good intentions were created. But now he says, now it's time to act. Now it's time to have a plan. So what's Paul doing? He's sending Titus and these two men to help them get ready. Later, Paul hopes to come himself, and he's even going to bring some of the Macedonians with him so they can see and they can encourage one another. And he wants these two groups, these churches, to be able to see and to know each other since they both had an affluence on one another. And he wants them to be bonded. But Paul is going to do something that uh, I had to learn the hard way. Marriage has a way of teaching you certain things. So young men and unmarried guys, two things for you today that I have learned. One, your wife is not your mother. Okay, She's not your mother. There's things that your mother's done for you that she is not going to do for you. And there's things she's going to do for you that you'll be glad that your mother didn't do for you. But the thing is, she's not your mother. The second thing is, wives don't like to be caught off guard. If you're out and you're at your day off, you took a day off and you go and uh, you play golf with Alan and your wife is working all day, it's Friday afternoon. It is not a good idea to say, hey, honey, uh, Alan and I, uh, man, we're, we're headed in. Hey, I've already, he's already talked to Julie and they're going to come over and uh, eat tonight in about 30 minutes. Is that okay? They don't like to be caught off guard. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He doesn't want anyone to be caught off guard. He is sending these men ahead to help and to prepare them. Because look at verse 3 and 4. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting, so the words that we have been saying about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said that you would be. He said, I vouched for you. Otherwise... If some of the Macedonians come with me and they find that you're not ready, all of us would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So Paul has been telling Titus and the other two men, and even the Macedonians, how the Corinthians have responded And how they are ready to once again live lives lives of generosity. And he wants to make sure they are not caught off guard. He knows the importance of guarding their integrity. That your actions are matching your words. He knows the importance of making sure that your actions are are going to fulfill all the promises that you said. He knows the importance of following through on your promises. So the last verse in verse 5. It says... So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you promised. I'm sending them to help you so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul, he knows he's been telling the Macedonians about the earnestness and the zeal of the Corinthians And he wants them to once again be a part of God's plan of living generously. And Paul knows it would be devastating to the Macedonians to show up. And the Corinthians were not prepared. The Macedonians would look and they would not see this as a willing gift. They would see this that it would be executed by force. And that is not a gift that honors the Lord. And so next week. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the end of chapter 9. These two chapters of 8 and 9 are are kind of Paul's rising up to write about bringing this gift to the Corinthians, uh, from the Corinthians uh, to Jerusalem. And we're going to wrap that up next week. But this close this morning, I want us to think about why is Paul, why is he so concerned about this gift? Why is he so determined that this group in Colossae, these Corinthians, that they're a part of it? It has been nothing but a headache for Paul. In fact, he's had nothing but hardship over it. He's had to to defend his personal integrity. He almost lost this church that he loved. And some of the people that he thought loved and cared for him have turned on him. So why doesn't Paul just move on? It seems like this is too big of a headache. Just go and find someone else. Leave their problems to them. But here's why I think Paul does not Paul knows this is much more than just collecting money. And you know what? You giving $250 over the next year to a student in Sierra Leone is much more than just sending money. I'm thinking all this past week, about the story of Zacchaeus. He meets this tax collector that everyone hates, and he climbs up in that tree to see Jesus coming because he wants to hear what is going on. And Jesus begins talking with him, and he invites himself into his home, and he sits down with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus gives us the report. He says, I want you to know half of everything I have, I'm giving away. He says, everybody that ever cheated, I'm going to pay back four times. And I love the words of Jesus. It says, for now you see that salvation has come to this house. And how did people know that? It's because his grip on these earthly possessions began loosening. To the point that he gave half of everything he had. And he was going to work hard to pay back four times what he stole. I think anytime we see someone living generously... Man, that's just one more finger letting loose on that grip of the things of this world. And Paul knows that. Paul knows this is much more than just collecting money. So I noticed four things that I think Paul was looking at. One, that it would prove the validity of their faith and that it was not in vain. Because they all go through these seasons of doubts. And he said, but you start living for someone greater than yourself, you start living for something bigger than you, and your faith will be strengthened. I think it also helped the impoverished church in Jerusalem to survive. Paul loves that church. He knows that's where the gospel began, and it's going to sweep through the world. Third thing I noticed that it would demonstrate the miracle of the new covenant. That you've got Jews and Gentiles actually living as one in Christ and giving and encouraging each other. It would have been extremely hard for a Jew to take money from a Gentile. But in Christ they're seen as brothers and sisters. The fourth thing I think we see is that it would declare the glory of the Lord of the church to the world. And Paul knows this is much more than just collecting money. Paul knows there is an unknown and a mystery to their generosity. He doesn't even know if the church in Jerusalem will accept the offering. But Paul believes that it is going to do something. God will take this, but Paul doesn't even have any idea. He just knows he's been called to do it. So here's what I would say to us today. You may never know the impact of your generosity of your words on the life of someone. You may never know the impact of the generosity of you opening up your home. You may never know the impact of the generosity of you investing in the lives of other people. And you may never know the impact of the generosity of providing a scholarship for someone to go to school in Sierra Leone. But there will one day. There will come a day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne of God. And oh, what a day that will be that we will gather in the praise of the most generous person that has ever lived. And I pray that we will be found generous with the things that we have been given. Let's pray. Father, this morning, what a difficult task for the Apostle Paul. The Christian life was nothing easy for him. But because of your love for him and the calling on his life, there was nothing that he would not do but to take the gospel to the world. And so, Father, because of his passion, we are able to sit here today with the truth of your word and many other believers after him. So, Father, as we depart this place, may we live lives of generosity. May we look for ways over this next week to extend a a friendly hello, to invite someone to sit with us, to open up our home in a way. And yes, we are busy. But Father, we have nothing to stand up against the Macedonians. We're not being afflicted on every side. We're not sitting in extreme poverty. But Father, you have granted us with everything that we need to be generous. And may we find ways to do that, that we would intentionally live lives that are characterized by generosity. But Father, it is nothing in ourselves. We do not have it in us. It is only because of what you have done in our lives. You have turned our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. You have radically changed our lives. You have given us a calling to fulfill, and you have given us a purpose to live for. It is far greater than ourselves. So, Father, we pray and we ask that the loosening of the grip on the things of this world would happen and that we would prize the things above and we would treasure Your Son above all else. It is through Your Son's name that sits at Your right hand that we would say, send Him quickly, Lord. And by the power of Your Spirit, we say, Amen.